0: I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Norman Deutsch. I'd like to maybe shift to talk about how kind of mainstream medicine responds to or thinks about these kinds of therapies or ideas and, you know, in my own practice, I kind of mentioned, we rarely talk about neuroplasticity or about the potential for these kinds of alternative approaches. And my, my own theory, and maybe this is perhaps a bit generous, is that, you know, we are so focused on kind of the epidemiological perspective when it comes to treatment and disease and and prognosis. So we look at the numbers from a study and we say, well, for the most part, people fall between, you know, these two lines, this this confidence interval and we're we're trained in that perspective so we lean very heavily on it it's what we're used to and it's just also i think part of the way that the studies are conducted so like clinical trial results are calculated using analyses that yield probabilities of efficacy within that confidence interval and i so i think it's hard to harder to see the individual in that area the other part of this is that treatments are paid for by insurance companies and medicare if studies show some efficacy for a broader group of people in a trial. So, you know, they're not going to pay for some individual therapy for someone if there aren't, you know, clear uh, positive results for a broader population. And you've written for Tablet about the pitfalls of randomized controlled trials and how they may not account for the, effic- the efficacy that might be felt by each individual. How do you think our, our paradigm for medical treatment? Ought to change you know, taking into account everything that we've just talked about and
1: yeah, so I mean I'm not against randomized control trials I think they're like a fabulous step forward, but they are just like one tool in the toolbox, and people apply them unbelievably arbitrarily so um if you like a treatment and there's a randomized control trial you you talk about that um if there is if there isn't one, people will say, well, there's other approaches. And actually, there are other approaches. We, we publish non-randomized control trials in journals all the time because at times they make sense. Um, look, I've, I've spent time talking to the people who developed evidence-based medicine, and they were psychologically sophisticated and philosophically sophisticated. and But they're aware that the rollout of a kind of fundamentalism about RCTs has gotten way out of hand. So look, let's say there were two medications available and we had no idea which one was better. And you were in a poor country and you could only make a deal with one one company because you you didn't have enough money. And... Both of them had side effects. Both of them weren't perfect, and you want to see which one helps more people. So you might do a, an RCT, and you, or you might compare those things. It, it makes like very, very good sense. But it's a very blunt instrument because there's inclusion and exclusion criteria to these studies. And when you get into neurological conditions that the likes of which I'm talking about, the variations between individuals is just massive, and just having averages like who's helped most on averages is actually an idiotic way to do it i mean the whole movement towards personalized medicine the realization we have different histories and risk factors and we 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 have each have different medications on board if if we're medicated and different and i haven't even said anything about different genetics or epigenetics turning other things on means that we're all very very different and just because you can say Let's take something I know, like depression. You know, you've, if you've got symptoms and you meet the threshold, and then we throw some a treatment at you and see which one's better, you'll get an answer and it'll be a number, but it, it will be nonsense because you can be depressed because you have pancreatic cancer and you know it and it upsets you. You can be depressed because pancreatic cancer is secreting a chemical in your body and you don't know you have pancreatic cancer that makes you depressed or you just lost your job or you just said something really stupid to your spouse or you just took an antihypertensive which is known to cause depression or you have an inflammatory diet i mean there are so many reasons and just so that you can and let's they each require a different approach to really get rid of the depression and I'm not just talking about manipulation of symptoms, but to actually get rid of the disease. So clearly, any serious medicine would understand it's better to get rid of the cause than just modify the symptoms. And so what do I say to those people? I, I basically talk about the model. Where the model applies, let's apply it. I mean, there is something great about controlling for uncontrolled factors in randomized control trials. but. There are times when, I mean, speaking to Peter Elwood, one of the founders of this, there's times when it makes no sense to do a randomized control trial, you know, in the famous parachute phenomenon. We want, we have never did a randomized control trial for parachutes. So do, you know, do we have some volunteers? No, we're not going to do that. There are times when children are involved, where the stakes are high, and there's a suggestion that a complex series of interventions would be very helpful and we don't want to volunteer our children to, to not get treatment especially if we've seen them being you know people very much like them being helped if you, let, let's say we had something like an illness where the symptom the pathology and the pathogenesis are all very very close together in other words there's really only one cause of the symptom then you might say, if the person has the symptom, that's a really good indication that if you can cure the symptom, you've cured the disease. Um, but there are many illnesses. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about tinnitus. You know, so tinnitus, ringing in the ears, can be caused by many things. It can be caused by a head injury. It can be caused by a tumor in the the auditory nerve. It can be caused by Too much exposure to loud music. It can be caused by some medications. It can be caused by COVID. Gregory Poland, who's was was and I think still is the editor of Vaccine magazine, and a huge advocate of the COVID vaccine, reported that he got tinnitus right after I think his second vaccine. He practically got into a car accident. It was so profound. Now all of these are happening in different areas of the circuit. In the brain. Um, In some cases, for some people, removing that tumor in the ear will, if it doesn't hurt your hearing, will get rid of the titanus. In other cases, you might need a very different approach. And in many cases, we don't know what to do. And so what we try to do is teach the person to live with it in different ways. Uh, Some of the tinnitus may in fact be a neuroplastic phenomenon where going on deep in the brain where the same frequency is getting triggered over and over and and others seem to be damaged to the hair cell and some of them are, are interacting. So there's just no shortcut. You have to know what you're studying and design studies specifically for that. It can't just be that everything goes for randomized control trials. That's all there is to it. And by the way, there are a number of studies, and I talk about them in my article, Medical Medicines Fundamentalist, and there was just a new one that showed, weirdly enough, if you compare reasonable quality observational studies where people aren't randomized to control groups and RCTs in in a meta-analysis overall, their outcomes are actually quite similar. You could have an RCT with large numbers that s- sounds convincing and is very, very persuasive to a mass audience showing a drug doesn't work. But there could be one tiny little flaw in it that renders it completely useless. There was one drug some people were interested in for COVID at some point. And But there was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which basically showed the drug didn't work. And the problem is, how did they administer the drug? The drug was supposed to be used in the first couple of days of COVID. That was very clear. They sent the drug in the mail to people who had reported to their doctor that they had COVID symptoms. If they sent it on a Friday, it might have arrived on a Monday, and then they never had any follow-up to see if people took the drug. So, I mean, you could do a randomized control trial, but if you have the wrong dose or the wrong delivery time, it's meaningless. So I would take an observational study that gave the right dose at the right time, all else being equal, over an RCT that basically was set up to fail. Um, and, or didn't follow people long enough, you know, like, let's say we were doing an RCT as as there've been a number of RCTs for certain therapies for depression that follow patients for six weeks and they show a benefit, but the few times people have done RCTs that follow those people for a year, find the people relapse. So you need good faith. You need integrity. You need understanding of first principles. And you need, you need feasibility and you have to understand the limitations of RCTs. I mean, like one of the things about RCTs, let's say, again, in my area, many of the studies that show that antidepressants work have what are called exclusion criteria. They say, look, we are interested in controlling for factors. All we want to know is, does this drug work in depression? So they they set up a study, and they invite people to participate in a study with the new antidepressant. But they say, since we're really only interested in depression, we are going to rule out anybody who has alcohol abuse, past or present, drug abuse, past or present, a major ongoing current stressor, who is suicidal, uh, or who has a personality disorder or something very, very high on a stress um, scale. And then they show the antidepressant seems to work. You know, a nice person gives you an antidepressant. They pay attention to you. They ask about you, Yeah, well, f- I've never met that patient. Well, actually, I have <laughs> met a few of those patients, but that's not what most people are depressed li- right. are like. <laughs> so the many, many games that are played. And, um, we also know then there's the the, the question of the, the the studies in the drawer it was at one point it became very controversial antidepressants became very controversial because some people one of them is david healy who is a spectacular psychopharmacologist was beginning to get reports of and document cases of antidepressants triggering suicidality in teenagers Now, that's a tough problem, right, because people who are depressed are suicidal, but he and other people were finding that it seemed to really increase the suicidality and have a paradoxical disinhibiting effect of the suicidal urge. That's really, really serious. I mean, when you send your child for a treatment because you think they're suicidal and they get something that might make them more suicidal, well, we'd better find out about that. Now, that was denied for years. It's now known to be absolutely the case that that can happen. But during the course of those problems, Irving Kershaw was, was most recently at Harvard and some other people, did and people in the litigation filed and went over Freedom of Information Acts of all the studies done on antidepressants. And they found out that many of the studies had actually shown they were no better than placebos. Now, this is nothing about suicidality. They just found out there were all these studies in the drawer that they just never took to publication. So when you put together all the studies that went to publication and the studies that didn't go to publication, the efficacy of antidepressants was extremely modest. And eventually, of course, it became clear that, uh, as well, this thing about suicidality or disinhibiting was going on. Okay. But that was going on all the time. So yeah, here someone publishes a a, a pretty solid RCT. It looks like the antidepressants work. What are you complaining about? Well, what about the ones you just didn't publish? So unfortunately, there is much about drug regulation And not just drug regulation, but especially drug regulation, because there's so much money involved, and our our system is broken. It is terribly, terribly broken. Many clinicians you know and I know see through all these problems when we hear about them. We're disturbed. A lot of it involves pulling the wool over physicians' eyes. But just think about it. We've set up a system, or the Americans have, where going into COVID, $800 million dollars Of the FDA's own budget was paid for by pharma. By some calculation, 45% of the FDA yearly budget comes from pharma, where the person who headed the FDA up until the beginning of COVID, Scott Gottlieb, left and went and got a job on the board of Pfizer, where the person who replaced him and was head of the FDA during much of COVID went and got a job a a major job uh for the financial company that got moderna going where there is a constant revolving door between people on the fda getting you know more modest i mean not insignificant but government salaries know that they can get jobs in industry and there's a huge disincentive for them so the fault sometimes shows up after the damage is done when it's too late and you know Dr. Ben Goldager points out in his book, Bad Pharma, that the pharma industry has paid billions in fines for all sorts of violations involving covering up safety problems. And he wrote, quote, Pfizer was fined $2.3 billion for promoting the painkiller Bextra, later taken off the market over safety concerns, at dangerously high doses, misbranding it with the intent to defraud and mislead. The largest criminal fine ever imposed in the U.S. until it was beaten by GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, close quote. This is a totally broken regulatory system. It is is a classic case, perhaps the most classic case of regulatory capture that I know of um, by an industry that spends way more on lobbying and marketing than it does actually on research. That is spent more money on lobbying than any other industry lobbying Congress so that, you know, Congress is just never goes after them. And because randomized control trials and done properly involve a lot of people, they cost a lot of money. And so only those with a vested interest in them can af- generally afford to do them. Like earlier in medicine there, it the drug companies weren't paying for all the studies. Now they pay huge amount there people with stocks in the drug companies or are employed by the drug companies and this happened with you know the the studies of Pfizer and Moderna were the ones who wrote up the studies now they say in the studies that the data will be made available the raw data but when people like Peter Doshi a senior editor at the British Medical Journal a very esteemed journal tried to get the data they said well not yet uh, it'll be available sometime down the road, like in 2025. Now, already many, many people had got the vaccine. This was, I think he asked for it in 2021. So we don't even, we we can't double check these things. We can't benefit from what the data might show by having the hive mind of international scientists Combing over it, finding patterns, maybe anticipating side effects or non responders or great responders, you know. And then already it was fast tracked. It was supposed to be for three years, but at six months, they unblinded the control. So we will never really know about issues of longer term side effects as we don't have a control group. Now, so the system is Americans have to understand. The system has been gamed for years. Two heads of the FDA, two leaders of the FDA, when the booster came up, uh, the study on the mRNA booster was not a randomized control trial. There were about 300 people in the study. On this basis, they were going to roll it out for all America. And Marion Gruber and Philip Kraus, to their very great credit, she was basically the head of the vaccine investigation group. She just resigned because the Biden administration was pushing the FDA and pushing the booster before the FDA had completed its study. And they said rightly, in an article they published, that pushing this is only going to create distrust. So yeah, do a perfect study, but in the context of a broken system, where by the way, the studies are published in journals, which are often paid for by big pharma. And that puts pressure on the editors and esteemed editors have said as much. Marcia Engel, the, who was the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, described how papers are ghostwritten by pharma companies and all the pressure on the editors. It's not good enough anymore to say, well, is it an RCT or not an RCT? I, I really wish I wasn't having this conversation, but we are now at a point where it's hard to talk about pure methodology in a context where there are so many games that are being played.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the great irony here is that I think this is very much a part of sort of the the science says movement, which you've written about, which exploded during COVID. We're beholden to this cadre of authorities who have said or argued for something. Many of the things that you just mentioned based on these journal articles or Statements from people in a position of authority, and it's sort of delivered from on high. But if we think about science as something that is never finished, I remember Paul McHugh once saying, The science is never done. It's never really done. It's always vulnerable to criticism, always subject to exceptions. Treatments may work for some, but not for others. It just changes, I think, if we recognize that, it changes how casual we are with our language and um, our approach to health policy. So in tablet, you wrote, science is an advanced form of critical thinking, not a crisis management technique. Those who present science and themselves as doing the latter are often playing a role. The consumer science fantasy image of what a scientist is and the process undermine the authority of the very science that we need. Why Why do you think this capture has occurred? Why does this 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 have such staying power this authority have such staying power despite the fact that there are kind of just wisps behind it sometimes
1: yeah i think there are historical components there are psychological components and i think that there's a corruption component so the easiest to deal with is a corruption component watch the mainstream media news and during those hours a significant number of the advertisements are by pharma. And that's not an accident because they can have an influence on the stories. Some people think it's a majority, uh, in some counts of the ads are by pharma. And again, for two reasons. One, a lot of the people who watch the mainstream uh, news are elderly and on drugs, but pharma also has a, a huge impact And basically the mainstream, you know, like, you know, the networks, they basically, almost all of them said exactly what pharma was saying. They didn't raise any of these questions. Like, why is none of the data, the raw data available? Like, that's huge. Listed that. That's like a huge, huge issue. So, but that's easy to understand. Businesses are maximized for profits. They, they, they pay tremendous amount of money to the media. So people just don't know otherwise psychologically, early on in COVID, the images we were seeing were, were just terrible and constant, and there was a tremendous amount of fear, and we all long for an authority who tells us, just make, you're going to make it go away. But then the question is, and this is where you get to the historical philosophical issue, Well, but why is the person going to make it go away a scientist? Uh, why isn't it, for instance, you may laugh, but a religious figure? Do you know, and this has to do with the rise of the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment was very, very great in some ways, but it was far from perfect. And there is a strand of the Enlightenment, and it might even be, it's certainly not a trivial strand. It, someone may even argue it's the major strand, which basically made the following kind of argument that mankind had been hobbled by traditional beliefs which were nothing but superstitions and were very frequently perpetuated by religion and religious authority. And we needed a new kind of human being who would be driven by modern reason and science, who would dispel those traditions and fearlessly interrogate them. And you have The rise of people like Francis Bacon, who was a very, very great thinker, but uh, not perfect. And he spoke of the development of a modern science that would be the conquest of nature to relieve man's estate. So, conquest of nature means that we're using a military metaphor. The scientist is the new general. And that military metaphor is all through modern medicine in a way that it wasn't through ancient medicine. You have a surgeon. General in the United States, and we pine for magic bullets from our medical armamentarium, and we have a war on cancer, and a war on AIDS, and a war on COVID, and a war on Alzheimer's, or the battle against heart disease. The military metaphor is everywhere, and I mean the irony is, of course, the way things are settled in the military is not by reason and dispute. It's not like a Richard Feynman science class where you were encouraged. To take on authority, there is a military authority because this is war, and if if when the fear is high, people who are don't aren't, aren't part of the team, they can be hung, or are, are demonized. So you know, in the Enlightenment idea of a, a a critical approach, the other component of this was empiricism became part of it. And the idea of empiricism was people can say all sorts of things based on authority, about the creation of the world, about the nature of the difference between male and female. I mean, whatever. But we are not going to take it on the basis of authority. We want empirical studies. But the thing about empirical studies is they're after the fact. And the thing about a pandemic is people want information now. So as I point out in Science Says, People were saying, I will give you in I will give you information now very, very quickly, at warp speed, I'll give you what you want. But that actually goes against the real scientific approach, is it's going to take what it takes. And so suddenly there's a pandemic. Everyone's saying it's the worst thing to ever hit us in, you know, since the 1918 flu. And So people are desperate and they long for authority. And the authorities think, well, this is my moment. And the kinds of people who are often at the top of these hierarchies in the administrative society often haven't practiced medicine for years. They're they're thinking in terms of populations, not individuals. They're, They're often political animals. And... So you had all sorts of things happening in COVID where there was a massive shift of authority away from frontline physicians and nurses, et cetera, who did like incredible work in COVID. I mean, I, I just want to say incredible, incredible work. And, but it, it went to people who were sitting in offices, often reading abstracts. I, you believe who you want to believe, I guess. But Scott Atlas said that when Fauci came to meetings, he made, and I quote, Almost no citation of current science, close quote, and didn't bring published papers or articles as Atlas did. It was more of him just declaring, This is what the data shows. The data shows this. I follow the data. We now know that sometimes he was behind data saying things that he wanted to say. So historically, one of the things that happened was in the Enlightenment, there was a point which in the rejection of everything traditional, there arose what was called the religion of reason, and they they spoke of it as a uh, the religion of reason. Sometimes it was called the cult of reason, and it was this weird thing. On the one hand, it was against every single conceivable authority that had ever existed previously, and it basically put incredible faith in human beings of the current time to use science to figure everything out and most of us believe that at the same time as often happens when someone overthrows a dictator and says i'm going to be give you freedom it became it, its own authoritarian system in part because it embraced the idea of bacon that science is the conquest of nature and then many physicians started speaking that way as as i've told you of the military metaphor in medicine so it was like one step forward one step back in terms of of what shall we say unfettered reason look it never ceases to amaze me that people would say using the word belief in the sense of having faith i believe in science or i believe in climate change should you believe in climate change do you believe in science Like. Don't people see that the word belief is applies to religion and not science like if you believe in science how is that not a religion like science is not supposed to be about belief it was actually as conceived of in its highest form a form of critical thinking that said just because somebody uh, sitting in some palace somewhere asserts something doesn't mean you should believe it you should say, show me the evidence. Let's look at it together transparently. That is the scientific method. So there's a lot of pseudoscience going on, but the difference is it's not happening at carnivals. It was happening in some of the most important institutions and there were moments, most people don't appreciate how important it is that Marion Gruber and Philip Krauss chose to resign. From the FDA, Um, they were very pro-vaccine. They've approved many vaccines, but they said they basically were saying something very, very rotten is coming to a head. And look, there's never been vaccines that have been rolled out as quickly to billions of people, you know. And it was really important that a tight ship was run. The obvious reasons that people have. Discuss you know the fear, the deprivations of some, and the benefits of others, and 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 so on. But you know one of the things that hasn't been discussed, which became apparent to me very early on, is uh, something that has made, for instance, the discussion of vaccines controversial since (laughs) they were first rolled out, and it's that during contagion, there is a very primitive brain circuit that's triggered in all of us um, to protect us and called the behavioral immune system. And so our regular immune system is designed to protect us once some virus or pathogen gets inside us. But the behavioral immune system is is there to protect us from getting infected in the first place. And it's this archaic brain circuit. And it fires whenever we think someone or something like an animal perhaps might get us infected. And it triggers in us disgust, fear, and avoidance. And if it was a medical test, we would say it fires a lot of false positives. Because let's say somebody from another, let's say when it evolved from another tribe that had a different history of exposure. To pathogens than our own uh, comes into our group. Well, and then somebody gets sick. Well, we may not even see well in, in you know ancient times we didn't see the pathogens. So we learn to recognize that person as a dangerous person. Or let's say someone just sneezes. So a lot of illnesses begin with just a sneeze. Or cough or just an exhalation. So the behavioral system fires up immediately to protect us and causes us to feel disgust and fear and to avoid that person uh, and maybe even attack that person or more likely exclude them because we don't want to get too close to them. So from the very beginning of COVID, the behavioral system was firing like crazy all across the world. And in some people, it's still firing, even though COVID is technically over. They're sitting in their car alone masked. And they'll tell you, yeah, they're very, very nervous. And in the vaccine debates, which have been going on since the beginning of vaccination, it's fired in both sides. You know, those who get vaccinated are especially worried about the virus or people who might carry the virus or whatever the infection is. But the unvaccinated are also worried and and panicking because they think the vaccine Will introduce the virus in them, and by the way, the behavioral immune system—it's—it's it's triggered again by hints of infection, also hints of poisoning. Because, you know, in early evolution, the—you know—before the development of the chemical industry, a lot of the things that poisoned us were byproducts of animals, various kinds of toxins or venoms, and so on. So, people who are afraid of All vaccines under any circumstance are often have the system going off because they are afraid of some of those chemicals. Now, I am not adjudicating here between these various things. I'm just saying, I'm answering the simple question, why is it hard to have a civil conversation in contagion? And part of it is there is this instinctual system, which is not in the modern medical textbooks as regularly triggered by pandemics, maybe because we haven't had a pandemic uh, in at this scale, perhaps in um, whatever it is, a hundred years, or I don't even know the extent to which that's totally true. There, there are many, many chronic infections that are out there, but the way the the public was trained, this is the big one, you know, the big hundred year pandemic. And so People did not realize they were under the influence of this, and they could become very, very vicious with each other, and frightened of each other, and disgusted by each other. And disgust, in some ways, is is more dangerous than than even anger sometimes. Because when you're disgusted by somebody, you know they're a non. You dehumanize them. You'll you'll forgive my language. You you don't say I want to kill him. You say what a piece of shit, like not even human. So, what I'm saying is. In all of us, we have to be aware as to whether or not, you know, this archaic circuit is is being brought into the discussion
0: too. Yeah, one of the um kind of shocking things from your series of essays on the COVID vaccine for a tablet, which I recommend everyone read, was that the companies were indemnified before the vaccine was even trialed, if I'm I think I'm getting that right. Yes. Which, and seemed to me to be totally corrupt because you're essentially saying you can do whatever you want and you won't be responsible before there's even evidence to suggest efficacy.
1: Yeah, and they got a lot of government money too, but that has been, that has been the way. And so, you know, I was trying to understand why is there so much vaccine hesitancy? And I was vaccinated and... What was going on, and I saw that it's a lot of the hesitancy is was about these particular vaccines, which you know did involve genetic material in some way, and were, and were new and were touted as new until people got nervous about them, and then they said, "Oh, we've known about this for technology for a long time." So I was trying to understand that, and the indemnification thing—it's it's not just that they're not responsible; it's also that they're not incentivized. To be at the top of their game, making sure that it is safe for everybody, or as you know, as many people as possible, or that we can start to find out. Well, who might it be at risk? You know, there was a movement not long ago, but it didn't really take off. And Gregory Poland, again, the editor of Vaccine, was for it, and I think it was a, a great idea, which was let's drill down more deeply on the data and find out. You know, a lot of the problems that you see developing that, that are, I mean, I'm not talking about trivial things like a headache, you know what I mean, or a sore arm here. I'm talking about significant neurological and cardiovascular events and so on. A lot of them are seem to be involved with autoimmune things and in one way or another, directly or indirectly. And... So, the idea was let's do some, now that we can do genomic analysis, let's try to see are there markers for who might be more inclined to have autoimmune responses? Um, Because they would be present early on. And let's follow that data. But no one really followed up on that because that was conceding that maybe there can be problems. So, we were in this absurd thing where everyone assured everybody that. There are no problems. And then problems would come up, and then first they would be denied. And then eventually, okay, yes, myocarditis in young men is real. But then they said, but it's not serious. And then it turns out that a lot of them had to go to the hospital, you know. And so, what if the people who were profiting from these things were re incentivized, as they once were, to do much more thorough safety testing? But there was a lot of panic, and that just got swept by the wayside. You know, needle points, I I think that there's something about vaccination that if it's done right, makes it quite phenomenal. I make that very clear. I think I make as strong a case as anyone I've seen has made in terms of what makes sense about it. But when the regulatory system is broken, you have to distinguish the following things. You have to distinguish the kernel inside of vaccination, which is actually fairly ancient now. I mean, you read the Peloponnesian Wars by Thucydides, and Thucydides describes how people who got the Athenian plague and survived it were protected from getting sick and dying if re exposed. That was the discovery of natural immunity in Athens in 430 BCE. And so those people could continue to care for others with the plague, which is, by the way, what we should have done for our elderly. If you want to talk about protecting the elderly, we should have gotten everybody who, who's you know, had been exposed to COVID to help out in a kind of volunteer peace corps kind of program in the old age homes, uh, and so on and so forth. But No, we were pretending natural immunity didn't exist, even though now everybody knows that the natural immunity in that early period was as robust as vaccines, and that's been shown by multiple studies now. We have to distinguish several things here. First, the brilliant kernel idea of vaccination, which goes back hundreds of years, maybe even a thousand years or more, the exposure in to a killed virus or an attenuated virus or organism in a small dose can be protective. Second, the execution of a particular vaccine, the making of a particular vaccine, it's actually not easy because you have to preserve, you have to keep the organism alive and then distribute it to many people um, alive in a modified form. Or you have to kill it and yet keep allow it to keep enough of its structure to be immunologically recognizable. And you have to keep, preserve it in chemicals that are not going to be poisonous to the human body, you know, or to the virus in the wrong way. Okay. And then there's what, do you have to refrigerate it or not refrigerate it and distri- distribute it? It's, it's a huge technical issue. And then there's the third thing, which is how we as a society regulate this process, talk about it, uh, and deliver it. Because those are all different issues. Do we mandate it or do we try to use science to persuade people? Do we insist everybody gets it or just some people get it? Do we say they're good and they're safe, like that low-resolution statement, or that say, give people more data so that they can understand? And if you look at the history of different vaccine ro- rollouts, you see a tremendous range. There's a participatory public health where everything is voluntary in places like Sweden. The eradication of, of smallpox is a great example because there you have a situation where it's not simply that the whole planet was vaccinated for smallpox and that's how we got rid of it. That's not how it happened. The numbers started to come down. And at a certain point in the 1940s in England, astute public health people realized that when you were doing the cost-benefit analysis of the side effects from the smallpox vaccine and the benefits, it no longer made sense to give it to every young person or infant and so what they did is they switched to a kind of containment surveillance strategy where the second somebody was found in england to have smallpox then their circle was vaccinated and so i mean that's a beautiful example of refinement you know like The cost-benefit analysis is going on constantly. You're not promising that there are no problems. When there are problems come up, like a grown-up, you can seed them, and you say, well, is there any way we can work around these? And then they found the optimal population at risk for getting it and transmitting it, and then they focused on those people. And so in COVID, those three things weren't distinguished. The kernel – Brilliant insight. the The reasonable questions, which is is this brand new technology, um, being, which is called warp speed with pride, is is that the per the proper speed for it? And then finally, the the last part and all the social issues—they're just all blurred together.
0: Yeah, maybe. Um, for the last question, I kind of want to tie this all together. Do you think there's, there's an intellectual link, uh, ideological link between this science says movement, this kind of overweening trust in authority as opposed to skepticism and maybe the resistance to some of the kind of therapies and ideas that you discuss in the brain's way of healing and the brain that changes itself? I
1: think it's complicated, uh, so the, you know, the question is like so just in medicine in general, n- n- let's not talk about neuroplasticity. In a place like the United States, where medicine is very expensive, and so insurance reimbursement is everything. It's hard to get a new treatment in unless it has a big machine behind it. Then there's the issue of habit, like when you had Wes Eli on your show and he talked about some. Great modifications that were done in the ICU that didn't cost any money. That I think they even prolonged life and got people out of the ICU much earlier. And it was just a matter of just doing some very simple things, checking. And they just couldn't get people to take the do the uptake. So there's an there, you know there's an issue of habit. You know, physician physicians, and you know these people in hospitals they run off their feet. I mean, they just, they work very, very hard. And increasingly they've been selected for going along to get along and to be part of the team. And so there's all sorts of subtle social pressures to do things the same way. Um, And they're not nearly as free as you'd think they are. I, I think that there's resistance to new ideas in medicine for all sorts of reasons. Part of it is, it goes back to Thomas Kuhn's idea about scientific revolutions. So the public's idea of science, which is what I tend to call consumer science, you know, like I snap my fingers and you solve my problem, uh, tends to think that science is something akin to what you think it is when you read a textbook. You know, chapter one is early knowledge, chapter two, builds on that in 3 and 4 and 5 and the idea is that science progressed continuously and it was additive and it just keeps getting better and better all the time it's inconceivable that the science in chapter 10 would actually be inferior or more wrong or a dead end compared to chapter 8 or 7 or 6 but you know kuhn showed that's not how science progresses and you know he was the person who made the word paradigm famous in this context that people have a, a mode of viewing the world. And that mode is usually started by a certain kind of very creative person like a Darwin or a Newton or an, or an Einstein. And then the paradigm is built up. That person may often even write for the public, believe it or not, because they're writing about something totally new. But once the paradigm is established, scientists start writing to each other, they develop their own jargon, and you get what he calls normal science. And normal science consists of people who teach the paradigm, who do obvious experiments from within the paradigm, others who defend the paradigm, and I would add others who get status from the paradigm. In fact, they all get status from the paradigm because these are leading intellectual frameworks for a civilization and others who spend their jobs full time attacking people who's who are outside the paradigm you can you know read things on junk science and their, their whole career is built of people who are pretend to be you know i don't know just protectors of of the truth and so on now once the paradigm's established um we learn about its limits over time, and there are some people they're often young, particularly in physics, and not necessarily wedded to the paradigm. Their mortgage isn't based on having a job where they serve the paradigm. And they say, "Oh well, what about this?" And they point out an anomaly which actually the paradigm can't explain. and it could be an experiment that had a result that everyone thought was wrong, but he sh- the person says no, the the experiment is right, the paradigm is wrong." and that anomaly creates incredible amounts of negative feeling i can't emphasize enough to you how those of us and i've lived within normal science for much of my life who are in normal science find and we don't talk about this we just sort of discover you know our income our status our view of ourselves is very very tied into the esteem with which the paradigm is held epistemologically in the world. You challenge my paradigm, you know, you're going after my income or you're saying I'm not as, you know, wise or important as I think I should be and so on and so forth. And I mean, I never would have gotten into this except every now and then a patient crosses your door and they're the anomaly. Um, They don't fit in the paradigm. And I mean, I've had a few over the years, and I threw as much of the paradigm as I knew at the, at the situation to try to help them. And unfortunately, their experience was outside it, and I had to go else, elsewhere to figure out what was happening. And sometimes I succeeded, and sometimes I didn't. But at a deeper level, there's the whole issue of the role of paradigms and so-called normal science which put up a fight when new things come along. And paradigms themselves can become quite authoritarian. Like the paradigm becomes all pervasive and it becomes an authority. A particular paradigm can be kind of an authority for an age. It is not easy to go against the paradigm. And people who try to go against the paradigm you know, there's ad hominems against them or they're ignored and so on and so forth. And of course, not everyone who goes against the paradigm is right. Some, some people are more wrong than the paradigm. So the problem with the paradigm is it can't explain everything. The world is just way more complicated than any of our paradigms. And whenever there is an awareness that it can't explain everything. There's a tendency to fall back on the old kind of authoritarian kind of enforcement of the paradigm. So, people who come up with new things they often face very very similar problems. Their credentials are questioned. Their good faith is questioned, um, or just more more often than not, they're just ignored. And when I took my neuroplastic turn and started to realize that some of the findings in labs and by these practitioners were part of a bigger paradigm shift that we would all benefit from making, um, I saw that a lot of the practitioners and the people who were the leaders in this, they, they shared many similar experiences. And many of them were actually quite viciously attacked. And I don't go into that in my books except in one case. But most of them of the first generation suffered consequences, and the ch- kinds of uh, uh, were in the kinds of disputes I've described. So just back to the issue of authority and science and, and COVID, when you have a new disease, you know, a novel virus or whatever by definition, there's going to be a lot of things we don't know. And if it's a global pandemic, the potential for panic is unbelievably high. And classic public health, I became friends with uh, a public health officer, uh, the longest serving public health officer in Ontario, in fact. Classic public health risk communication was all about not scaring people, just getting them to attend to what they had to attend to but not causing them to panic because once you release the fear, uh, it's really hard to turn off and people do turn on each other. And so this classic public health, if you think about it was a training in risk communication of an individual who is dealing with an emergency where it would be very easy to become extremely authoritarian because people are so frightened and it's a training to respect the population and teach them to come along, to not demean them, to listen to their fears, to understand their reluctance. I mean, that's a lot of what needle points was about to try to understand the reluctance people had. Um, And To resist the totalitarian or resist the authoritarian impulse. So, yeah, I I think that in in this case, neuroplasticity is dealing with what other practitioners doing new things have to deal with. But in its favor, it does speak to the public, because while the philosophers and the scientists in our models may have divided human beings up and split off mind and body too radically or created a split that we don't really quite understand the public experiences themselves fairly holistically Uh, we as individuals do and so i think it speaks to a a place in the heart and people don't treat it as an alien concept when they when they hear it and recognize what it's saying
0: On that note, uh, Dr. Norman Deutsch, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.